morning, everyone. Strong. 
just lift him up this morning. Take it all, my life in your 
is watching every gesture of your hand waves of fear collapse your command i know tomorrow when the pressures rush in you'll be there to rescue me again what a mighty god we serve what a mighty God, what a mighty God you are, you are, just lift them up, what a mighty God, what a mighty God you What a mighty God! 
every song we could ever sing Worthy of every praise we could ever bring You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you We live for you Jesus, the name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever save
serve a mighty God. Aren't you grateful for that today? And he is our firm foundation. And if it's he that we place our faith and trust in, then no matter what we face in this life, storms may come and go, but we know that we can stand firm in him, that he is always with us and he will not let us fall. What a great God we serve. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, I thank you today for your wonderful love for us. God, I thank you that in our lives it is you that is that firm foundation that we can depend upon, we can place our trust and our hope in. God, we thank you today that when we have you as the center of our life, that no matter what may come our way, we can keep our focus on you and we know that you are there with us, that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. God, we thank you for just all the promises that we have in you and that relationship with you. God, I thank you today that your presence is here among us. That God, right now you want to just speak to our hearts. And God, I pray that as we open up your word and we study your word this morning, that that word would be an encouragement to us. God, we know that your word is powerful. We know that your word is life-changing. And God, I pray that we would be ready to receive what you have for each one of us today. God, we love you because you first loved us. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Last week we were uh, finishing the services uh, and I was met in the foyer by Skyler. And he said, hey, Ryder wants to talk to you. And uh, I said, cool, man, what's going on, Ryder? And he, uh, he said, I want to get baptized. And we've been baptizing a lot of people lately, and he's been wanting to do this for a while. And so um, he got to meet with Lance, our student minister, and to talk about what baptism is, and uh, he's ready to take this step. Now, initially, he, we give him the choice. Do you want Dad to baptize you, Lance, me, David? And he said, I don't want Dad to do it because he's afraid Dad would hold him under too long. But he has since changed his mind and is going to have his dad baptize him. And uh, we're really excited to be able to do that uh, and to witness that this morning. So, Ryder, if you go ahead and step into the tank and face that way for me. Have a seat. And, Scholar, I'll let you get ready. And I'll do the talking and you do the dunking. And you hold him however long you want to underneath there. Does that make you nervous? <laughs> Not long, I promise. Hey, we're really excited and, and proud of you at nine years of age, you know, uh, to be able to understand the concept of what it means to be a, a Christian and to place your faith in Jesus. And so I know that uh, Pastor Lance got to meet with you this, this week, and um, I'll ask you two questions. I'll have Dad uh, baptize you. So, Ryder, have you placed your faith in Jesus? Sure. Okay. And do you want to follow him as a disciple? Okay, well, because of your public profession of faith in him and obedience to the command of our Lord and Savior, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in his death, raised to walk with him in a new life. Let's give him a hand. 
Welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I got to take a trip. You heard me reference this last week. 3,200 miles in just about six days, I think. And we saw some really cool stuff. And we came home and uh, had two days, Monday and Tuesday. And we left Wednesday morning at 5 a.m. on a deacon retreat. So we got to take the deacons of Living Water um, up to South Fort Colorado and see some of the most beautiful country I've seen um, in all the travels I've done. It's gorgeous up there. Um, be able to just encourage each other and, and just in, enjoy each other's fellowship, and I want to take just a moment uh, to tell you just how privileged and how blessed we are at this church to have such an amazing board of deacons. They do so much that you may not ever see behind the scenes. They're always just serving, making sure everything is where it needs to be, and I, for one, am very grateful for our deacons here at Living Water, so can we just give them a hand at this time? Thank you so much. Guys are awesome, and uh, we are blessed to have you uh, serving here at Living Water. Uh, so as David said, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we've been in this series in 1 Peter for some time now, and we've been just walking through this letter, which I feel like is timely. Um, as we planned this a long time ago, I just remember thinking, well, I just it did, I wasn't feeling it. Uh, and then as we kind of pulled the trigger, if you will, on this letter uh, a few weeks back, it was about the time all that stuff was taking place in Afghanistan, and I was just like, God, your, your timing is perfect. And so I've enjoyed walking through this letter with you, um, and so we're going to continue on. The, the title of the message is Living as Outsiders in a Strange Land. Now, one of the places that my wife and I saw that we've never seen before in our lives was Las Vegas. We weren't there long, and just for those of you that are wondering, we didn't spend a dime on gambling. I ate at the Outback Steakhouse and drink a Dr. Pepper. So just we get that in the, uh, out in the clear, right? You're like, ooh, what did the pastor do in Vegas? Nothing. Those guys are weird over there. <laughs> so I was thinking about that. Living as an outsider in a strange land. Rachel and I felt like outsiders in a strange land. And I was thinking, what happens in Vegas needs to stay over there in Vegas, right? So that's kind of the theme of this letter is we are outsiders living in a strange land. If you place your faith in Christ, you belong to the family of God this world is not your home. We're just passing through. Amen? We live in this world, but we're not of it. And we are foreigners. We're sojourners. We are strangers or we are outsiders in a strange land. And it seems like every time we turn the TV on the, uh, or open a newspaper, it gets more strange and more strange every day, doesn't it? So we've been looking at this letter and how relevant it is in our lives. And uh, today I want to talk about when holiness meets hostility. And I'd like to read the passage of Scripture first and then share a few thoughts from that passage today. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, read along with me. Now who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your word, and we ask that you would just let it come to life in our hearts uh, this morning. I pray that you would speak through me, Lord, just a willing vessel. I pray, God, that you would um, 
Work in our hearts and our minds as you would want to today. Open our eyes. Let us behold wonderful truths from your word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have to admit, before we get into this text this morning, that um, as an American, as someone who's lived in a, in a free country for so many years, I don't feel like I'm the right person to teach on the subject of suffering. And chances are, if I were to poll you this morning, you'd say the same thing. I mean, we have not really experienced suffering in the United States of America. And the, the closest we've come to it is maybe we were ridiculed a little bit, you know, in school. People harassed you or they kind of make fun of you or maybe you lose a friend or so as a result of it. As I said a few weeks back, you know, Facebook jail is not suffering. All right, time out. You don't get to do that one. But I've seen also in some people's lives, you know, they were in a faith and, and, they, and they placed their faith in Jesus. Maybe they're in a different religion and they placed their faith in Christ and, and they experienced some, some suffering where their families kind of shunned them and pushed them away. And we experienced some pushback and maybe a little persecution, but we don't experience it the way the first church, that second generation of Christians experienced suffering. So I feel like sometimes I'm not really qualified to teach on this. But the reality is we live in a world where we're kind of shielded from that. And my hope is that we never experience the kind of suffering that the early church experienced. But the reality is we could. Amen? And so it's not probable, but it is possible that we could experience some suffering because of who we place our faith in. So Peter has been writing this letter to a second generation of Christians. They were Christians that they didn't see Jesus, uh, the death and the burial and the resurrection, but they were there and they believed in the gospel, and now they're, they're starting to experience a little pushback because of their faith in Christ, a little persecution. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage them, but he also starts with looking at their, I call them the unfelt needs. So their, their needs are, hey, we're being persecuted, Peter... What do you got to say to us about the suffering that we're experiencing? But Peter starts first with saying, hey, I want to tell you about this living hope that we have in heaven. And he said, this living hope that is kept for you because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's kept in heaven for you. It's pure and it's undefiled. It's kept out of the reach of change and decay. This is a beautiful, priceless inheritance that is there for you that one day will be revealed to you on the day when Christ visits again. So I want you to focus first on that. This is a living hope, and that living hope should give us a little bit of motivation in our life. It should give us a little joy in our life, regardless of the things that we experience. Hello, church, right? Joy is not circumstantial, but the joy that we have is based on the faith that we have in the living hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Peter starts there, and you see that thread throughout this letter. He keeps bringing them back to the hope, to the hope. And this hope in Christ motivates them to do good, to live good lives. Another thread that runs through 1 Peter is this idea that your life, their life, was a testimony to the other people in their communities. Like they're believers, but their life as a believer would be a witness, sometimes by what you say, sometimes by not saying anything at all, but your life is a living example. And we see these two threads running through that letter. And then he gets to the point where he's addressing finally their felt need. They're feeling the pressure, the suffering, because they're believers, and he now turns his attention in the letter to talk about suffering. And he says, hey, listen, you're children of God, and you have this living hope, and this living hope motivates you to do good. And so when you do good, and how many of you would say that the first verse there was kind of a rhetorical question? Now, who would harm you for doing good? Who's going to harm us if we do the right thing? I mean, we would think, nobody, Right? Because Christianity has always been a benefit to society. Christianity has always done great things. Nobody complained when Jesus healed somebody who was blind. 
That was a good thing, amen? Nobody complained when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, right? I mean, Mary and Martha were especially appreciative of that. And Jesus went about doing good, is what scriptures say. And he calls us also to live lives of holiness, being sanctified, going about doing good things. And so, ideally, we live in a world where we think, there shouldn't, nothing go wrong for doing the, the good things in life, right? Who is going to harm you for doing good? And we would think, well, nobody. But there are another, there's another response to the goodness that we produce as followers of Christ. Sometimes it will bring hostility. Sometimes that holiness or that walk of sanctification that we're called to will meet a hostile world. Have you ever been in a room and it's pitch dark, you're sleeping, you're in a, a really deep sleep, and somebody comes in and flips the light on? Oh, that's offensive. I'm going to punch somebody in the throat, right? You just get mad. It's, it's offensive. It's abrasive. You're like, man, I can't see, and turn it off, and you might yell at them or whatever. That's the way I feel with us as followers of Christ. We are the light of the world in a dark world, and sometimes our light is offensive to the world around us. So sometimes just for being good followers of Christ, just living lives um, that are honorable to God, reflective of the scriptures, can, can bring about some suffering. And like I said, we've not experienced that, but we could. So as you listen to this text, realize that you know, we're not in the context with these guys. They were, it was very real to them. But for us, knowing that it is something that could happen, and over the past year, have we not seen an increase? And in maybe like the, the target is becoming more and more evident that it's on Christianity. I mean, I've seen it for years, but it seems like it's just been ramped up in the last year. So my belief is, I hope it doesn't, but it surely could happen to even us in the United States of America. And it's simply because I say, I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I want to do good to honor him. Right? And so as we read this text, I just want you to keep that in mind. And what do we do? How do we respond when our holiness meets hostility? And by holiness, I don't mean that anybody's perfect. The Bible says none is righteous, no, not one. We're not perfect, but we are on this journey of sanctification, being set apart for God. And so in that context, our holiness, our walking with Christ, our growing in our faith, when that meets hostility. So look back at verse 13. Now, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? Well, what is he talking about? Good. Look back at verse 8. He says, finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you a blessing or his blessing. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life, how many want to enjoy life? He says, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord, we need to get a revelation of that today, that the eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. And his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. And so we have this idea that God is watching. And as God is watching over those who do right, he's calling us to do right. We are to live motivated by the hope that is in heaven, motivated to good works. Are you with me so far? So as we are hoping in the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, this living hope, it motivates us to live lives of goodness, knowing 
that typically there's no pushback because of that, but if there is, he says that we suffer for it. Look at verse 14. Who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? Well, hopefully nobody, but verse 14. But, but even if you suffer for doing what is right, if you suffer, not just period there, if you suffer, well, if we suffer, we're going to be blessed by God. No, if you suffer for doing what's right. If you, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, I mean, you're doing what God wants you to do, and you suffer as a result of that, he says, you are, you're blessed. It sounds like what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He says, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. So there's this idea that when we suffer for doing what's right, the Bible says that we will, God will reward us or we are blessed. Blessed not meaning happy, but blessed meaning privileged from God's perspective. He says, I'm going to reward that if you suffer for my sake. Now, I should say this. If you suffer for being an idiot, <laughs> can't expect to get a blessing for that. You're like, duh, right? There's consequences to the actions. You know, but if we're suffering because we're doing the right thing, which we've not really experienced here in the States, but if we suffer for doing what is right, God will reward us for it. So he says in that context, if you're suffering for doing what's right, don't worry or be afraid about their threats, their intimidation. And you heard me say from the pulpit a couple weeks ago, I'm not fearful of the day that we're living in because I know that my God is bigger and I know that he's in control. And I won't walk in fear. Now, I will say this. I'm human, and there could be something happen tomorrow that will get me, and it'll make me walk in fear. But right now, I'm like, nope. I am good to go. My God is in control. And even if they take my life, I'll be with him in heaven. So bring it on, sucker. Right? So what he's saying to these early Christians, this church, he's saying, if you suffer for doing what is right, instead, he says, don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Easy for you to say, Peter. Don't, don't worry or be threatened by them. Instead, here's what you need to do. And I think this is interesting. It says, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Now, the King James says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. The NIV says, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. There's one word in the Greek, hagiazo. And hagiazo is translated many times, set apart, sanctify, worship but it's the, the meaning or the sense of that word that I want to kind of clue in on for a moment. It's to make as dedicated to God. So when we sanctify something, we're dedicating it to God. We got that part, right? So he says, but in your hearts, sanctify, or sanctify your hearts, um, excuse me, sanctify the Lord of God in your hearts, set apart Christ in the Lord of your life. And so it means to make as dedicated to God, either in becoming more, say more. Okay, so they're already distinct, Right? They're already sticking out like a sore thumb because they're not of this world. And he's saying in the context of suffering, don't be afraid, don't be fearful. Instead, dedicate yourself to becoming more distinct, more weird, more peculiar. To become more distinct, more devoted, and more morally pure. You know what I think about when I, when I read that definition? I think about the persecuted church in Afghanistan, in China, and different places across the globe that are experiencing true suffering because of their faith in Christ. 
And I don't remember who it was or when it was, but I remember if um, a minister from a foreign country came to the States and was there sharing about what's going on in the church. I believe it might have been China. I don't remember. Underground church pastor. And the pastor in the States said, let's pray for this brother that God would, you know, put an end to this persecution. And that, that pastor of the church in the foreign country says, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Please don't do that because they're seeing an amazing revival in the midst of this suffering. And there's something about persecution that just makes the church thrive. And it's like in the midst of persecution and suffering, the church, rather than being fearful, afraid of the threats, they're just digging in more and more into their faith. That's the picture I get. So rather than being fearful of the threats, when we're living lives of goodness and righteousness, rather than being fearful of the threats that might come our way because of our faith, it's kind of like we're just pushing and pressing in more and more to become more devoted, more dedicated, more set apart to God. It's like I'm saying, God, I trust you even more today than I've ever trusted you before. And the more the heat gets cranked up, the more I trust. Does that make sense? And that's kind of like what he's, he's saying, but, but set apart or worship Christ as the Lord of your life in that situation, in the context of suffering. It says, and if someone asks about your hope, this living hope that we've been talking about, this hope that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, kept in heaven, pure and undefiled, out of the reach of change and decay. If someone gives you, uh, demands an answer of you, like, so why are you that way? And here, here's what I believe. I believe that our faith demonstrated in our lifestyle should demand an explanation from those who are watching us. That they look at us and we are so weird and peculiar standing out from the rest of the world that they say, all right, tell me why you're the way you are. It's like an open door, isn't it? Oh, let me tell you why I'm the way I am. And you don't have to have it all figured out. I mean, for some it may be this. Listen, all I know is I once was lost and now I'm found. Now, I once was blind and now I can see, you know, the old hymn that we sing, Amazing Grace. You know, I know what my life was like before I placed my faith in Christ, and he has changed me. He's radically altered my life and my marriage and just everything about me, and I place my trust in Jesus. That's why I'm the way I am, and I truly believe his word, and I want to follow and commit to that. That's why I'm the way I am. That's the reason for my hope. And as Paul said, I know whom I have believed in. I'm convinced, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. Paul was absolutely confident in his salvation and what Christ has done to the gospel. And so as you and I are living our lives of goodness, you know, trying to just follow the scriptures and be who he's called us to be, and it's met with some sort of a pushback or hostility, he says, hey, in that moment, don't worry don't fret, don't be intimidated, but instead dig in even more in your faith. Become more devoted to God. And when you're doing that in that context, how many of you know it's just not normal? Because the way we're wired is when we experience suffering, we're like, I need to pull back a little bit. I'm putting myself out there a little too much, and, and maybe if I would just kind of tamper it down a little bit, maybe they'd leave me alone. And Peter's like, no, 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 this is the opportunity to shine. This is the opportunity for your faith to shine like never before. Back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us, <clears throat> chapter 5, verse 14 in Matthew, it says, You are the light of the world. You're the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. He says, In the same way, let your light, your good deeds, 
shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. There's this idea that our lifestyles, our speech, our actions, motivated by the living hope that we have, should be seen by the outsiders, by the world that we live in. Are you with me? And so he says, in this context, when we are experiencing pushback and suffering, he says, be ready, be prepared, always be prepared. The scout motto growing up was, be prepared. I was messing around the other day, I was trying to remember, I'm old now, and I was in the scouts a long time ago, and we, we drove by Philmont uh, the other day, and I was remembering those trips over there. And I uh, just remember that, that motto, be prepared. It meant they were always preparing for every situation. In this case, he said, be prepared always to give a defense. Always be ready because somebody's going to say, what makes you tick? Why are you happy in a time like this? Why did you respond that way instead of like the rest of the world when they respond this way? Peter says, always be ready. Even in the midst of suffering. Right? We don't get a, a pause. We don't get a break there. But even in the midst of suffering, when you're doing the right thing, Always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in you. Amen? But do this in a gentle and respectful way. I think we should highlight that, underline it, maybe put a mark next to it. Because sometimes as Christians, we're good at launching grenades, right? We'll give you a piece. I'll tell you what I do. You know, and it's Facebook or whatever. And we're just like, give them the what for. And yet here Peter's saying, okay, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you. But do this in a respectful and a gentle Way. I think we should be more like sharpshooters, right? Purposefully aiming and placing those words and the timing of those words in just the right times because the ideal is we're to be a testimony. We're not their judge. God's is the, the judge, right? But we're living our lives in obedience to him, and we're trying to obey what he tells us to do. And he says, do this in a gentle and respectful way. Colossians, Paul says it like this, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. So in the midst of suffering, we are to have the right response and we're to do it with gentleness and respectful in a respectful way. He says, keep your conscience clear. You know, that conscience is a beautiful thing. Before I came to Christ, I would do things and I had zero conviction that what I was doing was wrong. We were joking about that on the way to the retreat this week. And I used to see people walking on the side of the road and I would roll the window down and say, do you need a ride? And they'd say, yeah. And I'd say, hope you find one. I was honoring didn't bother me at all. It was funny. Tired of walking, run a while, you know, things like that. <clears throat> but something about coming to Christ and he puts the Holy Spirit in you. The Bible says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God that lives in you? And when he moves in, he brings this conviction with him. And there's something about that when you lay down at night, there's this conscience, this conviction that you go to bed, you're either feeling accused or you're feeling excused. And so Peter says, hey, keeping a clear conscience, keep your conscience clear. So respond in such a way that when you lay down at night, you can say, you know what, my conscience is clear. I responded in a way that honored God. I didn't get mad or uh, retaliate under the suffering or persecution, and now I feel bad in front of God, and i got to apologize to God for how I handled that. But he says, keep your conscience clear. So the idea is we're to live lives that are focused on this living hope, and that hope should motivate us to goodness. It should motivate us to want to live lives that reflect that we belong to the Lord. And it should also enable us to endure some suffering and persecution. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to sign up for that. I, I know most of you probably would not want to sign up for that either, right? We don't like suffering, but the reality is Jesus said in this world you will have trouble, persecution. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And we know that when the world hates us, it's not that they hate us. It's they hate what we stand for and who we trust. 
And so from time to time, as followers of Christ, we will possibly suffer for doing good. And in that context, when their holiness meets the hostility of this world, it is a time like never before for our light to shine, demanding an explanation for the hope that's inside of us. Respond in a way that's respectful and gentle. And it says, then, I love this, here's that thread again. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. There it is again. This idea that our life is a living testimony, whether it's what we say or whether it's what we do. Back in chapter 2, he was talking about it and he says, uh, let me find it. He says, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from the worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see, say see. So they're looking at your life. They will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. He's talking to the wives in chapter 3. He says, hey, wives, you, you, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. Talking about to the unbelieving husbands. He says, they will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Again, this testimony is, is, is a witness to those on the outside. And here again in this passage today, he says, they will see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Verse 17, it gives us this reminder he says, remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants or if it's God's will than to suffer for doing wrong. Duh. Right? It's better to suffer for doing good if it's God's will than it is to suffer for doing wrong. And the idea is when we do wrong, we expect that we're going to probably encounter some suffering because we did the wrong thing. But he said it's better if it's God's will for you to suffer for doing good. That's when God says you're privileged, you're blessed. And I don't understand how all that is going to work. I just keep defaulting in my mind to the passage that says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither can into the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love him. And I love that. It's an encouraging passage to me, right? When we encounter pushback and suffering to know that we are considered blessed by God. Verse 18, he gives us this example. Christ suffered. I'm like, well, we shouldn't have to suffer. Well, why not? Jesus did. He's our example. It says Christ suffered for our sins. It wasn't his sins. It's for, his, for our sins once for all time. It says he never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. Aren't you grateful for that? It says he suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. Look over at chapter 2, verse 21. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example and you must follow in his steps. It goes on to say he never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted. I'm still working on that one. Nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. Now, every time I read that verse I'm reminded of a pastor who's now gone on to be with the Lord. But when people would come to him and say, Pastor, do you know what so and so said about you? His response Every time was, God is my defense. I love that. And I'm not there yet because I want to say, what they say? Oh, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. That's the way I am, right? I'm still working on that one. But this pastor friend of mine who's now in the presence of God, he would always say, you know what? God's my defense. I'm going to leave it in the hands of God. And I love that. It's what it says about Christ that he left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. 
He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you were healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Can I ask you a question? Are you grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Man, are you grateful for the hope that we have? That this gospel is not for today, but it is for eternity. Yeah, we're saved now, but, we're, but it's not complete. One day when Christ returns, it'll be the full realization of our salvation. We'll no longer be walking in the presence of sin. We'll be completely removed from it. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. But this hope, this living hope that is given to us through the gospel, it motivates us. It should, Christians, it should motivate us to want to live lives that are honorable and pleasing to God. Amen? Hey, I want to go out and I want to do what God wants me to do. I'm struggling with that. I'm, I'm working on that. But overall, I want to try to be the man, the husband, the pastor, the friend, whatever, that God wants me to be. I want to live a life that's honorable before God, knowing that it's not always going to be received by everybody that I'm around. And sometimes I'm going to say things like that light that's flipped on in a dark room that's going to be just offensive to the outsiders. Like, you know what? I believe there's only one way to God, and that's through Christ Jesus. He's the one that said it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by me. That's offensive in our world today. You know that, right? Listen, I'm going to be honest with you. If there were 20 ways to heaven, I would tell you, and I would preach all of those. But I believe there's only one because it's what the gospel tells me. It's what the word tells me. And the reality is that sometimes that's going to be met with a little pushback. And so we're reminded through the example that Peter gave to the first Christians that when we experience suffering for his sake, for righteousness' sake, God will reward us for it. And as I said a moment ago, I don't know what that looks like, but one day I hope to get to heaven and hear him say, well done, Shane, well done. Because the temptation in our world today, I don't know about you, but the temptation is to please man and not God. You're in the middle of a situation, and you know it's getting heated, and, and you just want to make somebody happy where they'll kind of back off of the persecution or ridiculing you, and so you want to please them. And I always default back to, yeah, but one day I'm going to stand before God, and I'd much rather offend man than to offend God. I'd much rather stand before man and say, hey, listen, you can kill me for it, but this is my stance, this is my foundation, and you won't move me from it because I'm trusting in this eternal hope, this living hope that is waiting for me one day, right? To, to be before him and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Ah, oh, I long to hear those, those words. So here's a question. Have you placed your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you trusting? Are you relying on? Is it motivating you, this living hope today that's in the gospel? I mean, think about it. Where does joy come from? Joy is not circumstantial. We learned that in chapter 1. The joy comes from knowing that we have this living hope. So no matter if I'm having the worst day ever, I can have joy. Some of you need to know that. You're like, really? That's available? Yes, it's cool, isn't it? No matter what's going on, I can have joy because I have this living hope. Have you placed your faith in this living hope? Secondly, I would ask you this question. Does your life, your speech, your actions, your attitude, does it reflect that you belong among those who place their faith in this living hope? Does it, does it give evidence that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? It should. People should look at our lives in the grocery store, in the bank, <laughs> driving down the highway, which I still struggle with. They should look at our lives every day, and we should stick out like a sore thumb. Why? Because we are outsiders in a strange land, and we live differently. We march to the beat of a different drum, right? 
Because all of our hope, not some of it, but all of our hope is in Christ Jesus. And one day, when the time of this traveling on this earth is over, we will stand before him and we'll give an account for our lives. And I'm just saying the most important decision that you and I can make is what we do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you placed your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I would say Matthew 10, 28 says, do not be afraid of those that can kill the body. I think sometimes that's where we're at. We're seeing things just from a physical realm. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. He says, rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We should live with a reverent fear of this God that we serve. Not fear like as a, ah, but reverence and awe of knowing that, you know what, he is the ultimate judge. He's the ultimate God, and we trust in him. Amen? And so when holiness meets hostility, know that it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us, that he's abandoned us, but it simply means we're following the same example that Christ followed. Now, my hope is that we never experience that here in the good old U.S. of A., but the reality is we could. And if we do, I hope that we rise to the challenge. I hope that we realize, you know what? This is when we need to turn it up even more, make that light even more bright. Amen? And it demands the people around us to say, okay, I don't get it. We're bringing everything we've got at you, and we're inflicting pain and suffering on you, and you still smile. You still respond with peace and love and without retaliation. What is it with you? Oh, i got a good story to tell you. It gives us a great opportunity to tell about our Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth in your word and for the challenge in your word, knowing you said, Jesus, that in this world you will have trouble. We realize that we will experience some of that from time to time. And for some, maybe they have experienced some real suffering because of their faith in you. Lord, I know the early church did. I know that our brothers and sisters in foreign countries under socialism and dictators have experienced it every day. But Lord, let us be mindful of what your scripture says to us, that even when um, our walk of holiness or our growing in our faith, when it meets hostility, to know that if we are persecuted because of you, for your sake, that you consider us blessed, that we are privileged and you will reward us for that, that we just stay the course, that we just dig in even deeper to our faith and hang on and be more devoted and more committed and dedicated to you like never before. And as we do that, Father, I pray that it would just put a spotlight on our lives, not for our glory, but for your glory, but give us the opportunity to give a defense for the hope that is in us, that we can stand up and say, hey, listen, I've placed my faith in Jesus, and you should too. God, would you help us to stand strong, no matter what goes on in our lives, and to always have an answer, always be prepared, always with gentleness and respect. Lord, keeping our conscience clear that one day we'll all stand before you, and Lord, I know that we won't, uh, will not have lived this life perfectly here, but Lord, I think we all long to hear the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. Or would you be honored in our lives? Would you challenge us in our thinking and our minds and Lord, in our actions as we leave this place today that we would, we would go out as outsiders in a strange land and we would reflect your character, Lord, your principles in our lives. Father, we know that uh, the time on this earth is uh, is shorter, closer today than it's ever been before. And if it should be tomorrow or the next couple of weeks, I pray that every person in this room has placed their faith and their hope in the gospel. 
Lord, and I pray that it has an impact in their lives, an impact in our lives. It's not just a, a thing that we check off of a, bo- a box on our card that, uh, all right, I'm saved, now what? But it, it impacts our lives. It motivates us to live a life worthy of the calling that we've been called to. And at the end of the day, Lord, it's not for our glory, but it's for your glory. So Lord, be honored in our lives. We ask it humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.